from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. On this episode, we welcome Henry Timms, the author of a new book, New Power, How Power Works in This Hyperconnected World and How You Can Make It Work for You. Henry's a super impressive guy. Uh, he is the CEO of the 92nd Street Y in New York. He is the founder of Giving Tuesday, which I believe comes directly after Cyber Monday. Um, as you'll hear in the podcast, he's, he's an interesting guy. They have a very interesting philosophy on um, how you deal with institutions, how they are changing, how you deal with social media, uh, and um, what kind of changes your institutions may need to make, companies and others may need to make in order to um, survive. So uh, without further ado, Henry Timms. Henry, welcome to 14th and G. It's very nice to be here. So you are the CEO of the 92nd Street Y, and now you're this, you know, kind of major thought leader on institutional change. Um, is this something you've always been interested in? I think I've always been interested in doing things. Okay. <laughs> so I, I kind of, it, um, I guess I kind of stumbled into thought leadership through a process of, of building stuff. So I run, I mean, the 92nd Street Y is a large institution. You know, we have a $60 million budget and uh, over 1500 employees so sure. it's you know it, it takes some real operational running and 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 the the book and the thinking really kind of grew out of some of that work which is we were thinking a lot about what everybody's thinking about now which is we have these businesses and these institutions and these organizations and they've worked very well in, in many cases for lots of years and then something is different there's there's this new kind of set of realities there's this new world and mm -hmm. and and the thinking around new power really grew of that which was to say how do we start saying in, in a very kind of practical way, what are these shifts happening in our world? And then what are we as kind of old power institutions? And that's how I would classify certainly the 92nd Street sure. Y. But a lot of the businesses, a lot of the government agencies, government, sure. yeah. you know, they come out of this old power world. Mm -hmm. How do those, how do old power organizations like us start thinking about making a change? And sure. so, so we, Jeremy Hyman, who I did this work, do all this work with, who's been an activist his whole life. We but were, he's not here, so you just get credit for everything. That's how yeah, I wrote all the, <laughs> I, 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 I wrote all of the book. He he offered very little, actually, and I think he's been over-benefiting from the credit notes. True. So, so look, Jeremy and I, he, he's been an activist for his whole life, and we started working together to tr and wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review, which was trying to put some flesh on the bones to say, okay, there's this world of new power, there's this world of old power, here's how they're different, here's how they both have great value, and here's how old power organizations and leaders can start to shift to a new power world. And that's the, the, the that's what the, the, I guess the thought leadership became. <laughs> sure. Um, but it was thought leadership as a goal to be a set of practical tools. Right. This wasn't, let, let's gaze into the distance and wonder what the future right. might be. Right. We wrote this book to say, look, Here's a frame for thinking about the world, and here are some very practical ways of thinking about how you can operate more successfully in that world. Uh, well, on that front, you know, if you could give, and your your book, uh, New Power, uh, is being you know widely well reviewed, um, um, but your 
if you had to give if you, to, if you have to give an institution one piece of advice right now, I mean, we can get we're going to get into some more details. But what's a, what what's one that that maybe people aren't thinking of right off the top? Stop hoping for one piece of advice. <laughs> I I really worry about this. Which oh, look, I can give you a bunch of sound bites. No, 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 no sure. And I, and I can give you a that's a pretty of, good sound bite right there. I can give you some pithy frames, yeah. right? But anyone who's done any real change yep. knows it's not like somebody one day says you should be authentic. And then suddenly it's like, oh, wow, then everything's going to be terrific tomorrow. We're, we're desperate for the immediate fulfillment sure. of the one piece of advice, but I think it's a dangerous road. I think there are, there's not one piece of advice. There are a thousand different things to think about and habits to take on and things to try and learn. And those things are complicated. They're not, um, you know, there's no kind of instant organizational transformation which is going to get you anywhere. I mean, I, if, if, I had to, if I had to give you give one piece of advice, I think it would be, do this kind of work regularly you know if, if you really if sure. you, like the way you, you learn about connecting the crowd and how mm. you engage at scale and how you create sure. movements and networks and all of these things that we all know we need to do the way you do that is is not doing it once a year but doing it every day so if you were going to corner me on one piece of advice it would be something like that but i but i do think in general we should be very nervous of this idea that that there are easy answers because this stuff is tough yeah and anyone doing it well is thinking it's tough and then anyone listening to this knows that there's not like some easy there's no magic wand here yeah no that makes a lot of sense and probably if you're not staying on top of it my guess is whatever new power is now is going to change and look different as your you know uh the iphone didn't exist you know right however long ago right whatever the next thing is is going to change things up. I, I i think that's exactly right and i think that's the the, the framing of the book was to say look there is this you know new power is this ability to harness the energy of the connected crowd and you look around the world and look at anyone who's kind of coming out on top and what they're good at is harnessing the energy of the connected crowd whether that's trump or whether it's um the me too movement or whether it's facebook or whether it's uber or or, or the list goes on sure. the, the kind of the, the the first movers and the biggest winners right now are people who are working out what new power is and how it can work and that, in some cases, is instinctive, and in other cases, it's very strategic. But for anyone, whether you're running a small business or running a government relations, you know, arm of a big company in DC, you know what old power is already. You've, sure. you've, been, you've been working on that for a long time, <laughs> and you've, you've got good at that. Yeah. And and the prescription of the book isn't give it up. The prescription of the book is get your old power right and then add to it these new power skills and, and if you can do both of those things and know when to do both of those things well then that's that's how you move ahead i um so i'm going to run through a few a few things that you covered in the book and some new ones as well but one thing i wanted to just ask you about you said you tried with the 92nd street y as you're thinking through this stuff um you use your own employees as kind of the folks to go figure out the future and you didn't go bring in you know, some big consulting firm or some new set of geniuses. Do you want to talk about that a little? Because for me, that was really interesting, and I, you know, heard you talk about it before. Um, is using the talent that you already have a little bit. Yeah, one of the things we we think, and I, I certainly did this with our organization, but we've seen it work a lot of other places. There's this instinct when you think about how the world is changing to bring in some fancy outsiders, yes. right? So the, you, you imagine there's kind of an institution who did really well in the 20th century, who was a great big organization, who suddenly realizes they have to change. So they kind of lunge at some 24-year-old from Twitter, mm -hmm. right, who is going to come in and disrupt everything and show us the new way. Right. And those people often get rejected by the system because right. they don't embrace the system. The system doesn't embrace them and the, the, the two worlds you know collide yeah what what works much better i think and and certainly what we did at the y was we, we built an innovation team but we built it exclusively of existing employees so all of the people inside the institution who were 
in some cases playing out of position. Okay. In some cases were kind of under leverage. Okay. Who were very entrepreneurial. We grabbed some people from the fundraising department. We grabbed some people from the program department. We grabbed some people from uh, – there's one guy who had been running programs for teenagers. And so it was a very kind of disparate team. Sure. But they all had this kind of ethic of wanting to try new things and be very collaborative. And I think that when we when we start thinking about organizational shifts, what people need to see, if you want to change your organization from kind of an old power world to a new power world, you need to take people with you largely. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, but a lot of people. And to do that, they need to recognize figures who are succeeding in this, who look like them. Oh, and right. the 23-year-old from, from Twitter doesn't look like them. 23-year-old from Twitter looks like a 23-year-old yeah, right, from Twitter. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So, so we have this idea in the book of the shapeshifter, which is this really important transitional role, which is that person who had very high credibility in the old power world, who then starts to change his or her behaviors and actions. And by them shifting, it both provides the example and the cover for the rest of the organization to start to shift with them. Sure. So if you're thinking about your own organization, who would be those shapeshifters who are going to be prepared to try some new power experiments, to embrace some opportunities of getting beyond your payroll, to engage with the wider world, to try some experiments in building movements? Sure. Don't look to the 23-year-old from Twitter. Look to the you know, uh, 58-year-old um, veteran who has known this business back for 25 years sure, and is prepared to make a bunch of shifts in, 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 in her own work to, to push the organization somewhere new, Th- those figures are, are underappreciated, I think, in, in, in terms of transition. And I feel like it's probably, you, you mentioned this, but it's also very important for the leadership of the organization to give those people the room and cover and, 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 and kind of block a road path for them to, to, to experiment a little bit. Right. I mean, this is one of the things we see all the time. So we've been, you know, engaging with lots of, of organizations and companies and sure. universities and all sorts. And the the pattern recognition time and again is you have a lot of uh, emerging leaders who are all about new power. Right? Sure. They get that they want to engage with the – they want to kind of try new experiments. They don't want to stay in their lanes. They want to try all these new things. Sure. They've got this kind of abundance of agency coming to the workplace. Mm-hmm. And then you have a kind of middle management who is typically ambivalent, mm-hmm. um, some very pro kind of new power and change, some slightly resistant. And at the top of the organization, what you'll often see is every CEO now knows they have to talk about kind of empowerment and collaboration, sure. and they have to at least once a year uh, announce they're launching a movement. Right? There, there's, no, <laughs> there's no version of the CEO playbook that doesn't, doesn't yes. demand that of you. But actually, often it's just nonsense, right? right? Often, actually, what it really means is I'm going to behave in the way I've always behaved and then once in a while take on some kind of stunt yep. with the outside world. Let's yep. do an Ask Me Anything with, with YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, and, and, and so the prescription, the, the, the tough love prescription, I think, for organizations is, and this is an irony in some ways, for, for organizations to shift to new power, it often has to start at the top. That There often has to be people near the top of the organization who are going to say, look, I'm going to behave differently. I'm going to I'm going to create incentives for people who behave differently. I'm going to shine a light on people who behave differently. Those are going to be the people who are going to get the credit and the focus. And that we were with a, a big company last week, um, a big communications company, and that one of their most senior leaders. She's really thought very intentionally about how she actually reframes her focus every day in hmm. terms of the signals that she's sending around. Like literally her schedule? Like, yeah, yeah, all sorts. Uh, schedule structures, like just the way sure, that yeah. the, the, the signals you send internally, especially internally around mm-hmm. kind of how you think about people's participation. Sure. Right? People often feel such little agency inside companies, especially sure. legacy companies, right? Yeah. They get stuck under these rules and bureaucracy and these loads of kind of historical information. And and she's trying to think a lot about how you kind of open up, uh, flatten an organization in, in meaningful ways and how you make people feel more creative. And, sure. Uh, and, and I think that's that's a set of very tough skills. 
So I'm going to run through a list of kind of people themes. You mentioned a couple, some that are in their books, some that aren't. And I'd love to know what your thoughts are. New power, old power kind of, right. you know. Um, so obviously big one, Donald Trump, um, President Trump. What I mean – Mo- there's a treasure trove right, of stuff well, there. <laughs> where, where, let's let's settle in. Uh, the, look, I think the he has mastered new power as a model. So the way in which he's fed the agency of his crowd, you mm-hmm. know, he didn't um, try and restrain people. He tried to supercharge them. He constantly sends these signals about making people in his crowd feel that, that he has their back, that they're more powerful. He he benefits from the kind of the creativity. Of his movement, right? sure. all of the memes, all of the ideas, all of the 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 assets, essentially, e- even the very extreme assets, which actually push um, energy towards him, he has this kind of chaotic and and very supercharged crowd. And sure. one of the great successes of his campaign was he generated so much intensity. Yes, right. and I think that's one of the big lessons for corporations is for a long time the measure was favorability. So, mm-hmm. do enough people think we're you know, good eggs. Yes, right. right. Uh, and if they do, that's terrific. And um, we're going to worry desperately if some people don't. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's still important. But there's another measure now, especially in this world of kind of crowds, which is around intensity, which is not how favorable are you, but do you have intensity from the people you care about most? And so if sure. you look at Trump, Trump has mastered intensity at the cost of favorability. So his favorability was yeah. lower than Hillary's. Sure. Neither were much to write home about but he would learn Hillary's but his intensity was much higher and if you want to take another couple of examples of that look at the Brexit results the same thing which was uh, or you know they had much more intensity or 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 indeed look at the 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 gun control debate where the the NRA I mean you know 90% of people believe in you know sensible gun control but they don't have the intensity so I think okay so translating that so I think Trump does that very very well I think corporations are realizing and you see this Look at a Dick Sporting Goods. Look at a yeah. T-Mobile. Mm-hmm. You see these companies who are actually making this trade right now, which is, okay, I'm going to get more intensity about the people I care about most, yep. and I'm actually going to give up on some favorability because net-net, that might put me in a better place. Sure. We had a, I, was, I was doing this, this idea at the weekend, and it's not fully formed, but I think it's kind of an interesting idea, which is we have this net promoter score. Okay. Right. You know the net promoter yeah, score, sure. which companies use, which says, would you recommend this as somewhere to yeah, work for right. a friend? There's something else in this, which is something like a net ambassador score or like a net activist score, which is... Like, it, like a, will you carry their flag? Right. It's, thing, exa- right? It's, it's some kind of question <laughs> which is more than would you recommend it, but like would you, would you go to the line for it? Would, right. would, you know, would, you, would you knock down walls for this company? Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of an interesting idea, which is beyond net promoter score, which is what becomes the, the kind of the, the net kind of... Um, Intensity score is, is maybe one way to think. Probably about it. early on, you'd put Apple in that category, yeah, of, right? You know, people 100%. who just you know wouldn't yeah. even bother looking at another yeah. computer wouldn't yeah. ever you know. Um, okay, you mentioned guns. Oh, I want to say one more thing on Trump, sure. which is only because I think it's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. So he does the the, the 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 model he uses is a very new power model, but the values actually are not new power values. So what's interesting about Trump is that, and 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 you know, obviously from from my perspective and, and many others concerning, is that the value proposition is not actually about spreading agency and power the value proposition is i alone can fix it yes. the value proposition is actually about centralizing power that's him. very old school very old power very old pa- yeah. very old power yeah. and and so the, the the interesting and this is he's not alone in this because i think we see this around the world you can see this this kind of counterintuitive but very effective combination of strong men in particular who are offering 
both agency and certainty. Sure. So they're saying you yep. can participate more in the world, yep. and I will personally promise you that I will make that world much better for you. Yep. Uh, th- those dynamics we see in China r- right now, mm-hmm. which is the, essentially the, the, the same idea, which is people are participating in terms of kind of social media and culture and entertainment on a much higher level. Yep. But they're doing that in service of an essentially authorita- authoritarian value set. Yep. And so I think that's that's where the, the Trump uh, analysis kind of ends up. Interesting. Um, all right. So we'll, we're, we're going to jump around here a little bit. The Pope. New Pope. Well, I think very new power. Yeah. Running past By the way, I, I can't, I can't, I can't um, hide my. I'm a Catholic. I love this guy. I think he's really fantastic. <laughs> right. yeah. um, and even as we're recording this, um, he had another statement this morning on, uh, you know, having a conversation with a gay man, and he basically said, like, you know, God loves you, yeah. and we're going to move on with our lives. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll give you that's all the biases I have on that. One. Well, <laughs> I, I think I think you've, that's an important moment of transparency, which yeah. is a good new yes. pa- a good new power value. Yeah. So look, I think the Pope the Pope running perhaps one of the most old power organizations in the world is doing some things which are are, are useful for us mm-hmm. to learn from. He sends these. If you think about the leadership of the Pope, we, we we have this frame for the kind of the three leadership skills of the new power era, and I think these are very relevant for corporate leaders in particular and for government leaders actually. One is signals. What are the signals you're sending? The sure. Pope sends these amazing signals about participation. Mm-hmm. He takes off all the fancy robes. Yes. He, he gets rid of the Pope mobile. He rejects yep. the penthouse. All these signals about actually lowering himself down. As the kids, occasionally there's a kid who walks on stage and he says, "Yeah, come on up." Sit and down he embraces here. them. Yep. And, and think about where you see the Pope. You mm-hmm. never see the Pope in Paris or Vienna. Yep. You see the Pope with poor people in sure. areas of great challenge. So he's yeah. very clear about what signals about the kind of institution he wants. Sure. To he then has structurally changed the, the church, so yep. it's much flatter. Yep. Uh, he's taken on some of the corruption at mm-hmm. the heart of the church. Um, important to note, not all of no, the corruption. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, but I would imagine, like every older organization, I'm not defending this, but I just think like every organization has. Um, m- probably more problems than any one leader can solve. That would be my guess, right? And you you have to kind of pick and choose a bit. I think no? I, I I think that's true. Although mm-hmm. the, the bar is probably higher if you're infallible. Probably. So probably, the, probably. But okay. So number two, there's this kind of structural <laughs> shift where he yes he has you know he really has flattened the church and he's consulted laity and he's trying yeah. to push power. He talks about the inverted pyramid. Mm-hmm. So he actually talks in structural terms, which is okay. I want to have the the clergy and all the pomp at the bottom serving the people at the sure. top. So he's very good in that. And then he does this thing, the third thing, if it's signaling and structuring, he does this shaping function, which is he's shifted the conversation around the church without actually shifting the doctrine. So the, the, the comment that you just made now, mm-hmm. so he's met this guy, he said something you know, very affirming about homosexuality, sure. and lots of people around the world, that's very powerful. Yeah. He hasn't changed doctrine, right? There Correct. hasn't been doctrinal yeah. change yeah. here. And that's true, actually, the who am I to judge stuff, a lot yeah. of these issues are are very powerful from the point of view of he's shaping a conversation away from these hot-button issues which the church had, had been defined by for so long. Sure. The church essentially got into this world where it was defined by what it stood against sure. rather than what it stood for. Yes. It's now moving much more towards a church where it's defined by what it stood for, and he's done that by focusing on the church. He uses this phrase um, that mercy is a doctrine. Uh-huh. And it's such right. an interesting idea, and what he's essentially saying is the nature of behaving more mercifully 
even if it's not changing the doctrine itself, is a shift in doctrine because you're shifting emphasis. Sure, right. So what does that mean? So a very new power leader, yep. I, I think might, you know, he could very easily be badly undone by some of the sexual morality issues inside the Vatican, of course. which he hasn't addressed. But I think net-net, uh, very new power, and has done the three, the, three, the three kind of key bits of new power leadership, signaling, structuring, shaping. He's done all those three very well. And any corporate leader can learn from, think about that set of, abilities right sure what signals do you send yeah how are you restructuring to, if, if you really want people to participate in your world how do you structurally do that and then last of all shaping can you shape the culture not just of those people on your payroll but those people in your wider world sure that's the great skill and when he talks about um peace or the poor or whatever else i think you also get a big running room of yeah yeah we're all for peace right catholic not catholic whatever like that that's a road we feel like we can go down and avoiding some of the other stuff i mean even though i just brought it up is is probably useful in that front right I think, I think that's right yeah and and i think it's you know it becomes very i think especially now the you know message messages of of, of love writ large are people are crying out for that yeah speaking of love this actually got a decent um decent segue here so my i am um been recently very fascinated with jose andres i think he is um for a guy who is just a cook as he says um you know basically fed an island by himself for some amount of time. He would never say that he did that. He would say lots of people helped. But uh, what's your thoughts on him? I didn't know much about him. So this is the chef. Uh, he g goes to Puerto Rico and feeds the, basically figured out a way how to get um, all of the food that was on the island to people who were hungry, right? And wow. so uh, he went to, uh, It's. I think it's a, for me, it feels very new power uh -huh. because he he kind of went to FEMA and FEMA said, "Well, we have all these rules and regulations." And he said, "I don't really care. People are hungry." Right. And um, and then they said, "Well, we can't do this and that." And he said, "Well, I don't care because people are hungry. So what we're going to start doing is making food." And he made the the story is basically he made served a thousand meals his first day and forty or fifty thousand meals by the end of the next couple of weeks and did it started with a credit card and and kind of went from there and, and, and captured some other stuff. And who's making the food? He, so here's the thing. So he goes and gets a bunch of chefs that are already around and yeah. says, can I use your kitchen? Can you start making food? Because what he realized is the food was on the island, but we, the question was, how can you get it where, right? So it's in a truck or a cooler or some yeah. other place. Um, and so he ended up opening what he calls um, kitchens, which are either a restaurant or sometimes people's houses, like thousands of them around the island and Amazing. basically pointed using social media and a bunch of other things to point trucks boats whatever that was bringing food to those locations and then let people know where to come um, that's an incredible story it's really unbelievable especially for a guy who's he's a chef he's also very you know he's a famous chef he's yeah. got a bunch of restaurants he does all the rest of this stuff but i wonder you know we talk about corporate social responsibility a lot like that talk about setting an example for now when he goes back to his company i suspect and and this is where i feel like it really fits into new power when you're setting your goals for what your kitchen looks like and whatever else i suspect the guys who sweep in the floors in this kitchen right now feel better about working there they're going to come work earlier and later and because they're kind of a part of something bigger i think that i think well i think we know that i mean you, any of the data especially on people you know coming to the workforce now the mm -hmm. expectations around some degree of purpose are much higher than, mm -hmm. than they were so i think that is, that is a given i also think it's just what people want to do with their lives like i mean the, the there's a real sure you know you see the opportunities like that and people get people have the contribution to make that kind of 
um, change and make that kind of change is very impressive. And I don't, I don't know much about that story, although I'm going to learn more about it. But yeah. actually, the in moments like that, the question is, do leaders like that make it all about themselves or are they capable of actually starting a movement which is bigger than they are? Because I think that's the interesting, if you think about this yes, kind of change sure. space, there's actually a real dynamic between particularly how you balance celebrity with your crowd. Sure. And there are people whose crowd celebrity dynamic is essentially lots of people validating them. And there are people, rare, who end up working out how to validate their crowd. And that's actually sure. a very different thing. It's a very different set of dynamics. Yeah. You actually step out of the picture a bit more. What's the, what would be an example of that? I think Lady Gaga is actually a good example of that. Interesting. So she's, if you think about her, way, the way she's kind of defined the dynamics with her fan base, yeah. it's actually all about their identity rather than hers, at least primarily. So, huh. you know, her fans are the little monsters yeah. and, and they're defined by these set of norms around kind of individuality and compassion and tolerance of difference sure. and diversity. Mm-hmm. And she positions herself in a much more matriarchal role. She calls herself Mama Monster. And it's all about this, it's this, it's the same kind of power shift. It's very subtle, but an important one, which is this isn't the believers. This isn't like people who are, yes, right. you know, defined by their love of one guy. They're, they're, they're defined in the case of Gaga by a kind of community norm that she's built around her brand, which of course leads her to selling you know, millions sure, of singles. Right, right, it's right. hugely beneficial to her. Mm-hmm. But I think what she's worked out is, is, is she's worked out that um, smart balance between b- being um, both a star and being someone who can shine a light on others. Yeah. I, and, and that's pretty rare. I, and, and also, I suspect with her giving a little bit more voice to the geeks and nerds and different people of the world may say like you want to be in a different pool there's a whole bunch of us here and we're all here right yeah but that's the great skill of our age yeah isn't it i mean it's a great skill look it's a great skill of all ages but but especially in a world where we are also connected now Mm -hmm. the question for people listening to this is how are you building those you know communities of affinity around the things that you care about sure and and how are you bringing people there's a great um psychologist called Marilyn Brewer who has been a big influence on us and and she has this idea of optimal distinctiveness Hmm. and optimal distinctiveness is this idea that groups are formed successful groups are formed if everyone feels just the right amount of the same and just the right amount of different oh interesting so So you keep your individuality plus you've had this collective bond so think about all these groups think about the Gaga example they all feel just the right amount of the same they're all little monsters they have that same but in the context of that all of the things that she's doing is about encouraging them to create their art to take their conversations to speak they all feel also that they can stand out and be very different good question for companies which is how are you feeding the optimal distinctiveness of your consumers whereas companies actually often don't give people a sense of either feeling the same or feeling different right, 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 <laughs> right, right like right. you're the people who pay the bills yes, right so exactly. and so i think that's that's an interesting frame which is what the kind of community bonds are around companies okay. and then within those community bonds how do people feel like they can stand out those are two interesting questions interesting what do you think about the um the, the 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 Me Too, Times Up, Women's March group. I all of my feminist friends will say that those are three separate organizations and yeah. groups. But uh-huh. I think there's a big kind of thing there, and it feels a little decentralized. Um, what do you think? Well, I think there's a very. I mean, I think a, I think you know I join the, the the millions who have been so inspired by of course this yeah. work. I think there's an interesting lesson emerging around how change starts to happen, which is maybe a counterintuitive one. So if we cast back our minds to Occupy. Okay, sure. The critique was Occupy failed. Occupy was all this noise, nothing happened, and it didn't really work out, and Occupy was failing. You ask any room of people, you know, was Occupy a success? And net, net, people don't Mm -hmm. see it in very positive terms. But 
there's no way of thinking about this, which is actually what Occupy did was kind of shift a cultural narrative, was kind of open up a window for discussion, which you could then say, okay, well then, in the years that can't follow, um, the Piketty book gets as big as it does. You see institutions like the Ford Foundation sure. shift its entire uh, funding mechanism mm -hmm. around ideas of inequality. Mm -hmm. And you see inequality being discussed at political levels day after day after day after day. So a generous reading of something like Occupy is actually Occupy did what movements should do, which is shifted a cultural narrative, and then other people came in to fill that gap. Right, okay. You could then apply the same analysis to Me Too. So mm -hmm. Me Too, of course, begins with Tarana Berg, sure. you know, 10 years ago, and then um, at the end of last year, um, spreads all around mm -hmm. the world as a movement. And the same critiques that Occupy uh, was was subject to, mm -hmm. Me Too was subject to too, which is somehow that it didn't work because it didn't have local chapters and people weren't paying dues mm -hmm. every week mm -hmm. and there weren't three policy wins in the first sure. month. But you can actually start to see the relay which happened with Occupy happening with Me Too. So organizations like Time's Up will come mm -hmm. in and actually take the, take the surge of new power yep. and start trying to make some real progress in old power ways yep. and then shift that along. So I think one of the, the things we should start to think about in these moments is there are so many people waiting to leap and say, it fizzled, right? Sure, right. It was clicktivism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right. what happened the day after? Yeah. This kind of this quite boring default response of answers, mm -hmm. which is just waiting to criticize movements, which I think doesn't go as deep as it should do. And, and mm -hmm. the deeper analysis is to say that there are moments, of course, there are moments where things just fizzle. Happens all the time. Sure, yeah. But there are also moments when these surges actually lead to something bigger over time, and I don't think we should discount that. The, uh, in general, the uh, critique you're mentioning now, I'm already hearing on the Parkland students and those kids, which I feel like, I feel like is the leading edge of something. The activist high school kids is a different thing we haven't dealt with in 30 years now. Um, but immediately they were written off as, oh look, they can't get anything done. Right, and that's always the. It's always the same. It's, it's the same, exactly the same critique. And I suspect, look, who know, who knows on these things? But, right, but the. But I suspect that, and this is a prediction rather than the fact, I think the prediction is I bet we'll see the Parkland moment as a similar turning point in years to come. Let us hope that we do, mm -hmm. as, we, as we did with Occupy in terms of at least the cultural narrative shifting. And, sure. and, and hopefully that can lead to some real both legislative change and behavioral change. Yeah, I, um, I'm continually fascinated by high school students. But the high school students, um, I feel like, corporations and everyone else can learn a lot from they're very passionate they're very good at organizing each other they're very good at like to a lot of your stuff of 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 really telling you what's important uh and what's not by their actions by their non-actions they can also be mean to each other but but for the well, most part i find them to be an energy force that i don't think you see in other folks they just have a capacity which we didn't you know i was a teen yeah. i was a teenager 20 i guess 25 years ago well surge into a therapy session so when i was a teenager my 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 capacity to participate in the world i could go to the library mm -hmm. i could get books out i could sit on the stairs at my home and dial the local radio station sure hoping i would get on the talk show and, yeah. and, and i never got on and, and i could get a pen pal that mm -hmm. was essentially my means of participation mm -hmm. And my expectation of participation, I, that was the, the only route, and I didn't expect the world to give me much more. Yep. And I had a very privileged upbringing. Mm -hmm. Now, compare that to, the, to someone like the Parkland kids, who can start these movements where they connect, can connect with people all around the world and engage with people around the world, and they have both the opportunity to do that, mm -hmm. and they have the expectation. So this generation oh, yeah. is rising where they don't, they, they just expect that's how the world should work. And, and the problem for old power institutions in particular is we're still operating often as if our constituents are sitting there on the stairs 
dialing up hoping they'll get through yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, when right. when that's not how the world works anymore right. so i think that's an interesting and I, I was talking to a company the, the other day who was saying in, you know in a candid way you know it's only very recently we started listening to our customers and they didn't mean that in a glib way they, huh. me- they meant in the sense that they they really hadn't worked out smart feedback loops of of the sort that they they are now working out mm-hmm. not because they weren't interested it just wasn't their habit and so I think that's one of the interesting shifts is we, we're all recognizing that the kids the kids like that represent a, an expectation of how the world should work and, and we have to fit in with that because they're certainly not going to fit in with us right exactly um, all right here's another one old school institution JP Morgan Chase um, they have been doing a ton of um, we used to talk about corporate responsibility, and now they talk about it as you know investment philanthropy and things like that. They're doing stuff in Detroit and here in Washington D.C. and other places. Um, how's that fit into this whole world? Is that an effort by them to try to become a little bit different and a little less stodgy, or is it just window dressing? You think? Well, I think there are two different things at work. Yeah. So one is the the general push for people to work out a capitalism which. people feel and in reality is benefiting more people more broadly so clearly a lot of people are working on that Mm -hmm. the now that isn't necessarily new power so that that may be be an intention to be good for the world right but isn't necessarily actually giving a lot more people a, a lot more power isn't necessarily engaging people around how they think about their lives and what they can do isn't actually giving more people, you know, this idea of actually making other people powerful. It may not be that I don't know much about the, the initiatives at JP Morgan in particular, mm-hmm. but it may not be that that's actually the, the, the broad intention. And actually, mm-hmm. banking in particular is a very old power. Yeah, that's, world, yeah, that's right? why I was thinking of them. Right? There haven't been so far lots of good examples of banking working out how to kind of surge, surge the interest of the crowd around their bank. Mm-hmm. But you might imagine somebody could. You mm-hmm. think about the disruption possible in, in the finance space. Mm-hmm. If you had a bank where people genuinely believed that they that, that the bank was serving both their um, their needs and the broader world and were giving everybody a fair shake and mm-hmm. were invested in them and had the kind of feedback loops that they enjoy yeah. the rest of their lives around how they think about getting a loan or, or applying mm-hmm. for finance or or all of or all of those sets of dynamics, there's a lot of opportunity in in the finance sector which we'll see come to fruition in the years. We had um, uh, Peter Shear from J.P. Morgan on this podcast a while back, and he was saying it's a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. They have um, – they pull out um, – for these projects they're doing in Detroit and other places. So uh, view Detroit and in black and white terms as, you know, an old dead city that's trying to reinvent itself. Um, they're grabbing employees, to your point, uh, uh, their own employees, and, and, and giving them parts of these projects and saying, hey, can you go? They're, they're trying to figure out mass transit. Why don't you, you guys go help them figure out that stuff? They're also um, a part of the team there, and I think they view two things. One is it's a dead city, and if it gets rolling again, they're going to be able to make some money. But also there's that trust loop, which is, hey, you were here when things were bad. When things are better, you're still part of the program. So I think they're thinking of it a little bit that way. It'll be interesting to see if it can continue to work. And at some point, things like, you know, uh, banks are such uh, – you end up getting a CEO change or somebody else, and they say, we really just want to go make, you know, investments for our stockholders, our shareholders, our chairman, and all the rest of that stuff. Um, so it, I feel like it does share a, a bit. What do you think about the um, – as I was looking through this book and, and reading up about you – the one thing that came to me a bunch is like, what if I'm running a company and I'm making perfectly good money Uh, or I'm being successful in my philanthropy or I'm, you know, whatever the organization is that's working. uh, There's probably a lot of people that says like, Hey man, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, 
where is the jump off point between yes, keep the trains running the same way you normally do to that's gonna not work at some point in time. So I think of this in 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 a practical term of um, energy companies who are not investing outside of coal, for example, mm-hmm. right? You know, I'm sure there's coal companies making tons of money, and at some point in time, we're gonna have less coal, and that's you know, where is that line? You think, or do you feel like that's kind of an everyday effort to kind of keep peering around the corner? I think there are a lot of. I'm trying to think about the successful people I know. Mm-hmm. They, they don't really think like that in general. There are probably okay. some, but they, but they they tend not to think. You know, steady as she goes, everything's going sure. great. They tend to constantly be thinking the world's going to end, and we're <laughs> yeah. This is about this is about to go horribly wrong. What on earth can I do to save it? Yes, exactly. E- e- even I'm, I'm thinking about two or three of of, of people who are stratospherically successful who I sure. happen to know, and and they don't spend any time thinking about anything other than the chances of it all falling. To falling over by tomorrow morning so yeah. so i certainly think there's you know a- anyone who is think who has been successful recognizes that the conditions are changing and they need to start grappling yep. with these changes and so ideas like new power i think would fit neatly mm-hmm. into that world then there are a group of people i think who not unreasonably will choose the dancing until the music stops approach, right right which is look um i'm thinking of a, a, a leader in particular who runs an important organization, who has done a really good job for a long time. The world mm-hmm. has changed. They haven't changed. Sure. They're not going to change at this point. Yeah. And they've probably got five years left. And the institution is n- underperforming right now because they aren't prepared to shift. Mm-hmm. But they did a great job for a long time. And the world's, you know, the, the results that they're posting are good enough. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of influence around this individual. And so it will keep ticking on. Mm-hmm. Is that the best thing for the world? Pro- probably not. But I think there is a strategy there. I just, right. don't, I just don't think it's one I, I would encourage but yeah. i think lots of people will take that route and i also would say look some of this isn't easy if if your whole career has been built on your old power skills and you've got this inside influence you've yeah. you know you've completely got managerialism right you know yeah. how to run politics of systems you've got all this down yeah and then suddenly someone's saying to you well now let's learn about how you can create movements and create agency around your product and re-engage people right. and, and push power down into the organization and out into the world and you're like we've spent generations like, doing like, that yeah, no, no, no 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 i don't I, I would rather not do that i i'd like to stay as i am for the moment um you may take your instagram and yeah disappear back to where you came from so i do think i do think that's i, I have a great I actually have a lot of sympathy. I have a lot of sympathy with that. I had a, a, a friend who was in a work situation, and they were being pushed to, uh, to kind of imagine a very different professional identity as this organization shifted, sure. and they just didn't want to do it. Yeah. And, and they left, and that was the right thing to do, because I think it's the worst thing to do is, and we see this a lot, mm-hmm. is people who will, um, who will pray great lip service to all of these kinds of shifts. I want to be more open. I want to be more transparent. But they don't really engage want to people. Right. And, and then yeah. it's like, no. They, they, they was, yeah, We've just, been yeah. making widgets yeah. like this yeah. for a long time. Sorry. Our plan is to continue to make widgets like that. It's, 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 just, funny. it's not going to happen. A um, uh, couple other, just, just a couple other things. Um, you invented Giving Tuesday. Uh-huh. Um, how did that thing take off? And it's like global now. So, I mean, it feels like this is like the, you know, almost the best example of new power. Well, it was certainly designed in a very new power way. Yeah. So, we, you know, after Black Friday and Cyber Monday, which were, mm-hmm. you know, rituals of, of commerce and consumption, sure, we wanted to try and add something which made another point, which was Giving Tuesday, which was mm-hmm. all about philanthropy and giving. And, 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 and we designed that from the start. So something like Giving Tuesday, the old power way of designing that, would you'd call it the 92nd Streetwise Giving Tuesday. You'd insist yes, that everybody right. give you $100 to participate. Yeah. And you'd say, look, there are seven things you can do on Giving Tuesday, and here's the rule book, and you must do these seven things. Yes. And, and that wouldn't have worked. 
in right. because it wouldn't have left the space for other people to engage. So we created Giving Tuesday essentially as a meme. Mm-hmm. So we said, look, here's Giving Tuesday, and we encourage people to grab it and turn it into other things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some people would, would use Giving Tuesday to raise money for a local cause. Other people would um, give blood. Other people would give clothes. Other people would give shoes. And so it started to kind of morph as it grew, which is one of the things that these movements often do mm-hmm. well. And then it started to actually change its frame. So Giving Tuesday became Giving Blue Day for the University of Michigan. They raised five, oh, $5 million last year. In, in Singapore, Giving Tuesday became Giving Week and became a week really focused around uh, around volunteering in particular. Sure. So wherever it went around the world it started, or, and around the country, it started to, to turn into whatever it needed to be locally. And so it had some of that optimal distinctiveness, which sure. is everyone feels the same as part of the yeah, Giving Tuesday right. mission. You see now it's now in 100 countries. Mm-hmm. And... All of the logos look very similar mm-hmm. now, but they're not the same. They just, they're all very different, but you, sure. could, you could tell they're part of the same family. Yeah. And so everyone feels very different too. And so, and so Giving Tuesday has been a really interesting example as a project of w- w- what kind of scale you can get to if you're prepared not to take any credit. So we didn't take credit for that project. Yeah. We never, there's, you know, there, were no, never, there was never a moment where kind of the founders of Giving Tuesday were in a picture with Bono. Right? There was right. Never, that just wasn't how, we, that right. wasn't how we rolled. It wasn't what we were trying to do with this project. Right. It got stronger because other people took it somewhere more interesting. interesting. And, and I think that's an example of the kind of idea that can work in a new power world, but it requires a different kind of a mindset. Did you feel like you left stuff on the table by not keeping the credit or by not putting those folks in the front of Bono? Do you feel like you're bored or... Well, I've never, I've, never, I've never met Bono, which I, I don't know what, it, what, what he's like, but if he's as charming as people say, I suppose that's a big, that's a big <laughs> missed opportunity. I will say, in the name-dropping world, I have met yeah, him. Yeah, see, he's great, right? And he's really fantastic. L- life-changing, Much yeah. shorter yeah. than you'd think. No, I think he's quite short. And I when I met him, I... Yeah. I totally fangirled it up. Yeah. I couldn't even no, the, keep it together no at all. <laughs> so I, I look other than other than the, the Bono deficit, yeah. which I think is very real, <laughs> which is um, a significant the, deficit. Right? The Bono, Bono deficit is very real. I, look, I, I, no, I don't. I think. I think. I, I don't think for a moment. I, I, for, well, two things. One, we launched this from the 92nd Street Y. The job of the 92nd Street Y is to create is to make a contribution to creating stronger communities. Sure. Giving Tuesday did that. The job of the 92nd Street Y isn't to be famous or to get credit. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say that in our mission statement. Yeah. So I feel very relaxed about that. Number two, if we had tried to, it would have backfired. So oh, interesting. If we right. had tried to... You would we, have defeated yourself yeah, by doing you'd have, it. You'd, yeah. if, if it becomes somebody's personal ego show. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is now, this, this, this was unexpected, that all of the global campaigns around the world, so there are now uh, 100 campaigns and, and 50, 60 of the leaders now in each of these countries who run Giving Tuesday in their own country are on the same WhatsApp group. Hmm. And they are constantly engaged every single day, sharing best practice information tips with each other. So it rolls 365 days a year. And Asha Curran, who who runs Giving Tuesday, and is our chief innovation officer, her comment on, on these leaders is they have these three qualities, which you have to have to be good at this kind of work. This very collaborative, this very new power work. One is a super entrepreneurial. Yep. Right. So they're really prepared to try. Try things. a bunch yeah. of stuff. Yep. Two, they're very collaborative. The mm. nature of giving Tuesday, if it's all about you, it's not going to work. Yeah. And three, they're largely quite low ego. That they're actually prepared to mm. not be the superstar of the piece. Right. And especially in the social change space, the people who we've held up as heroes are the superstars. Right. These amazing individuals right. who, you know, I was growing up and I had a personal tragedy, and after my personal tragedy, I started a nonprofit, and now the nonprofit has served sure. me. Right. right. That we've we've heard that loop so many times, which uh-huh. is essentially the kind of the savior context. Sure. Um, what I've learned from Giving Tuesday is it, it essentially 
and this none of this was my work. This was the work of others in the mm-hmm. movement. Is essentially they worked out how to scale leadership. They mm-hmm. worked out there was a type of new power leader that you could encourage people to be, and then they would actually support each other. Interesting. And so I think Giving Tuesday has become. There's a great. There's a great phrase from from the, the founders of Black Lives Matter who talk about the leader full movement. Uh-huh. Not leaderless, but leaderful. Yeah, 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 How do you sure. create space so lots of people can be leaders? Yep. I, I think I think Giving Tuesday has has done a, a little bit of that, and and I think it's just amazing to watch. Interesting. The um, okay, so I, I I could feel like we could go on forever. Um, I'm very uh, fascinated by you, but let me ask you two quick questions. Uh, I'll ask you three questions. I'm going to take advantage of your time here. Number number one, can you give me an example of a CEO that you feel like, you know, high profile CEO or CEO that we would know that's really tackling this new power in a way that's substantive and and i'm sure there are millions just give me one i don't think there are millions actually but i'll yeah. give you what uh, john leger oh. at t-mobile t-mobile yep so he, he's wacky on the uh on all the social media stuff you think about all the things we've talked about today. yeah yeah he's definitely traded favorability for intensity oh for sure right? so yeah, yeah, yeah. he's yeah, actually going out of his way to provoke people yeah the signaling he's, is very much new power signaling. Like mm-hmm. every Sunday, he's doing his kind of slow roast Sundays where <laughs> he cooks. If you haven't seen this, he does a live YouTube thing where he actually cooks meals with his consumers and fans. And yeah. They send the suggestions, and he tells everyone how the company's doing, and it's kind of like a fireside chat for social sure. media. They've done some interesting structural stuff. They did this thing. I think it was a stunt, but it was a clever stunt, where they made all of their subscribers um, stockholders. They gave all of their subscribers a stock. So they said, huh. look, actually, guys, we see you as more than simply people who pay our bills. We see you as owners of this company. So they're trying to get that stuff yeah, sure. right. And then the shaping, he's tried to shape this whole, this idea of T-Mobile as, you know, being so much more than just, a, you know, the uncarrier idea. He's mm-hmm. kind of tried to build this iconoclasm around sure. around T-Mobile. And if you look in recent years at brand, at brand loyalty, they've actually done quite well in terms huh. of the, the, the rise of that. Uh, I, the question with John Legere is, is it, is it going to prove to be substantial? over time or is it just a series of stunts that add up to something sure. and I think that's that's a, that's a very real question and yeah. when you know when he leaves mm-hmm. which he all CEOs do one sure. day yep. has T-Mobile as, T-Mobile as a company changed or was this just a period where he worked out how to play the dynamics of our times sure. but I think he's a good example of someone who is getting some of this stuff right to, to his company's benefit interesting um, and there's a new VA um, a nominee who's going to be up for the VA VA is one of these things that I think is like the most old power thing in the universe right it provides great health care for, for for folks there are huge problems at the va um if you were the new va secretary like how would you even attack a big giant monstrosity like that with some of these new power ideas Oh, well, I would, I would firstly say that you've made a very bad appointment. <laughs> that, that, is, that is not that. I, I'm, I'm not the man for the job. Yeah, and I'm not picking on the VA, by the way. It could be any other a big government agency. I just feel like they're titanics and they're tough to turn around. So I, I, I'll give you a general comment on, on government in particular. Mm-hmm. One of the great challenges is, especially now for, for younger people, is people are so used to good feedback loops. If you think about sure. it, for the sake, let's just for the sake of argument, let's say that you took an Instagram picture now of us having a conversation. And you posted it on mm-hmm. Instagram, saying, "You know, fascinating conversation yep. with Henry Timms, who's never met Bono, <laughs> or something like that." <laughs> yes, right? Exactly. Within within um, you know minutes, it would get lots of likes. Yeah. Lots of people say it was great. Yeah. You know, people would tag in, people would tell their story about when they met Bono, mm-hmm. and it would suddenly be this kind of immediate, very positive, uh, very communal yeah, feedback sure. loop. Well, they were great. 
then you think about how people experience government. Mm -hmm. So people who are used to all these incredible feedback loops and they uh, experience government, and it's often frustrating, it's yeah. bureaucratic, it's um, a lot of paperwork still, yeah. the, the tech is very poor, yeah. the outcomes are very vague, yeah. it's obscure. Sure. And so there's this real dissonance between the feedback loops of the, of the critical institutions in our world, like, like the VA, like all sure. those, who do such important work, and the transactional nature of social media platforms, sure. which, which mean us, we all have such high expectations of frictionless existences. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes, how do the two reconcile? Yeah. So the, the job of government, I think, is to create better feedback loops where people feel more engaged, more rewarded, they understand transparently mm -hmm. what's going on more, yeah. they get what they're promised, they, yeah. they, can set, they can engage that, they can celebrate that, they can share yeah. that. There's a bunch of things happening there which I think is very, very interesting. But also for all of us to remember that not everything is as, e is as easy as us posting a picture of you and me on yes, Instagram. Right, that right. actually the things that count on life, count in life, the things which really matter tend to have some friction in them. Yes, right. If right. It, 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 to, to be suspicious, to be suspicious of the frictionless is quite a good idea because okay. certainly if you think about anything you've ever learned mm -hmm. or any relationship that matters to you in your life or anything that you've ever kind of any way you've grown or learned as a person, none of those things were frictionless. Yeah. They were it's not, hard. None of them were yeah. easy. They were all by necessity. They were hard because that's yeah. why they were beneficial. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a mid, there's a middle ground here, which is between the kind of the frictionless fantasies of Silicon Valley and the hard realities of DC. Yeah. That, that there is a middle ground, and, <laughs> I, and I think finding that middle ground is is the it should be the goal of government in in the years to come. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, um, so the I wonder if the so the movement you're creating as part of New Power, um, I think also can can turn on you a little bit right um i got a middle schooler it turns quick sometimes yep. um how does how do you how do you balance that i mean because you got to let you got to let these new ideas and momentum grow but what if the momentum takes you down a road you're running a company that's like this is a terrible idea or or we're really you know going after employee x or or person y um in a way that's becoming personal how do you deal with that or how should a good leader deal with that? That's probably the best way I'd ask. Well, I, I don't think companies making mistakes is a new idea. Okay. So I think that's been happening okay. forever. So sure. I, but I think w one of the one of the dangers in this work is that we cast the world as a choice between two binaries. So either it's very high control mm -hmm. or it's complete chaos. And you right. as a leader have an option, right? Yes, yes. Either let's keep everything nice and controlled like it always has been. Sure. And because of that, we won't, we won't invite any risk. Yep. Top down. Yep. Nice and easy. Old power, everyone happy. Yep. Good enough. Or we're going to embrace the crowd. And if we embrace the crowd, then inevitably within the first three days, there'll be a mass movement of people trying to knock our doors down. Yep. And that typically isn't the, the way this tends to work okay. out. The, the, way, the organizations who do this right are actually thinking very carefully about how they open up, about how they structure to get people to participate in what they're mm -hmm. doing, about how they kind of think strategically and structurally about making these kinds of changes. And they recognize that there's going to be some risk along the way. But I think I would probably argue that the greater risk for any organization right now is steady as she goes. Uh, it, even a successful organization right yeah. now, the, 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 it's much harder to notice the, the, the slow, steady decline than it is to recover from the you know one momentary sure. spike which yeah. goes wrong right 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 and i think people it's interesting when we talk about this work especially with organizations and companies and in fact, actually with government people so often the first question is about risk so often right. the first question but yeah. yeah but what about what about if it goes wrong and and it's this it's this idea that somehow that if you give up control things are going to go horribly wrong 
But just look for a second at those people who have um, worked out how to think about control differently. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the Me Too, the, sure. the, yeah, yeah. the platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, they have worked out how to give people more agency. And mm-hmm. by giving people more agency, they have achieved more of their goals in the world. So right. I think the, the kind of the outstanding question for anyone who's on the fence about new power is, do you genuinely believe you will be able to succeed in the years ahead if you aren't able to marshal more effectively the energies of the crowd? Mm-hmm. And if you really think you can do well without it, then, you know, good luck to you. But I don't think many people, if they're answering that question in a sober way, will answer yes. Interesting. Well, this is fascinating. I've taken up way more and more of your time than I wanted to. Um, uh, thanks a lot for, for, for coming in, and um, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. I want to thank Henry for stopping by 14th and G. Um, if you haven't read the book, you really should. It's it's really interesting, and um, I think there's a good number of folks who feel like uh, he has touched on something that kind of others haven't figured out. So check out the book. It's called New Power. If you're looking for me, my email address is wooters at mc-dc.com, and we'll see you next time at the intersection of business and policy right here at 14th and G.